Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. In this episode, I am going to have a great throwback to one of my old students who's now, again, we had this discussion about being elderly, but I got Justin Perdue, and he is an architect with HDR. And I think that um, he's really good at being able to communicate a lot of ideas about what it takes to translate from school to the profession and how the stuff that you're learning both in class, but more importantly, outside of class, everything from collaboration all the way through to just, you know, organizing your own resources and time, that stuff is relevant in the profession as well. So I, I want to make sure that Justin has a chance to speak, to speak his mind because he's an old, I think I even hired you as a, not only was he a good student, but I hired you as one of the TAs for my courses, didn't I, Justin? You did. What a mistake that was, right? Hey, no, you know what? Uh, HR at Waterloo didn't say a single thing. It was more on me. But anyways, Justin, please tell us where you came from and how you got to where you are now. Awesome. Well, thank you for that introduction, uh, Vince. Really excited to be on with the, the David Letterman of Niche Architectural Education Podcasting. If uh, anyone listening will actually get that reference, we'll see. Yes, yes. Um, David who? Yeah, exactly. David what? Copperville? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from kind of small town, Ontario, Bob Cajun, if anyone knows where that is. And uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I, I'm a Waterloo guy same as Vince. So I did both my undergraduate and graduate degrees there. And I, honestly, I kind of fell into architecture, you know, thinking about high school and making that decision. Um, I was kind of a creative person, but I didn't, I never really thought of myself as an architect. I thought of myself more as someone who might be going into an engineering stream. And it was actually a high school guidance counselor who suggested that that architecture might be something I'd be interested in. Um, mm-hmm. So I applied to a couple of schools and you know, got some interviews and eventually got accepted. And I still wasn't sure, uh, but it just seemed like it was a really interesting challenge. Hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll take that on. So, so wait, just, just let me pause there for a second, because we have a lot of kids in high school that are listening. And what is engineering? What's the allure of engineering versus architecture? I think, I think something, sometimes people don't understand what either of those two are in high school. So I think it's worth telling us about your experience on that one. Well, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think I had a fundamental misunderstanding of what both of those things were when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. It's hard, right? Like you, you, if you don't have people in your life who can kind of show you what it looks like, but I, I saw them as being similar in that I, I wanted to solve kind of interesting problems uh, in mm-hmm. the world. And I thought that design in some way could be the way to that. And, and for me, I was, when I say engineering, I was kind of thinking like aerospace, like I thought, Ooh, it'd be really fun to design airplanes or, mm-hmm. you know, spacecraft or things of, of those nature. Um, but then, you know, in, in, in hindsight, I think I kind of fell into the right profession because architecture has been like a really great match for me personally, and I really mm-hmm. enjoy it. So I, I think that's, that's definitely worked out. And again, engineering has a lot of different disciplines. Um, the disciplines that are associated more with, with building construction, I know pretty well, and they're, they're a little, little more technical, I would say, than a lot of architectural design is. Um, I mean, a lot of my engineering friends are probably cringing if they're hearing this right now, but I would say <laughs> that architects are, are, are kind of more, we're focused on function, but we, we, care, we, too, we, we care too about beauty mm-hmm. um, 
and, and I think that that's something that maybe on a lot of uh, engineering disciplines, that's less, that's less interesting. So if you're more interested in just solving a problem, making sure that something's correct, but you think that there's, a, there's definitely an absolutely right answer, engineering might be for you. But if you're someone who's kind of more artistic and creative and you like to debate what the right answer is and find the most elegant solution, then maybe something like architecture would be a better fit. Okay, that's good. Just guys, I, again, I just wanted to make sure that people knew the, the big game. I know some uh, listeners are just like rolling their eyes going, yeah, we're already in architecture, we know, but you know, I just wanna make sure we got that. So you, you went through Waterloo undergrad, grad, um, I hired you, you're a good kid, you did a great job. So once you graduated the, the pearly gates, what happened? Yeah, so I had kind of a decision to make at that point. So, you know, I had, obviously I'd been a TA for you. So teaching visual communications, 3D rendering was something I was pretty passionate about. And I, I worked for a number of different firms, uh, including Design Store here in Toronto and uh, Squint Opera in mm -hmm. England. And that ex I was re really on the fence because I was pretty excited about that too. And I thought maybe that could be a career that I could do. Um, and then, so I graduated in 2008. And I was kind of hemming and hawing. I was working in London. I was really enjoying myself. But I, I realized I, I kind of wanted to design buildings. I wanted to build things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I came back to Toronto and I got a job with Stantec, which had mm -hmm. actually been a company that I had done a bunch of co-op terms with. So that was a situation where my, my co-op experience really helped me because maybe some of the listeners won't remember, but 2008 was not an awesome year to try and get a job. <laughs> Uh, um, I think uh, compared to 2020, though, I think that... Oh, you're, you're right. You're right. And I think everything is relative, certainly. Uh, everything's relative. Okay. I was, there for, I was there for four years, and I had a really excellent experience in that, in that time. Um, I was able to take a couple of projects all the way through. And I think that's really... That's actually difficult and important for a professional earlier in their career, mm -hmm. is to start from the very beginning of a project, do schematic design, work on the concept, and then actually take that project all the way through and see it get built. Yep. Because what you realize when you get something built is all of the things that you did wrong earlier in the process. And so I got to do that back to back twice. So with two projects in rapid succession where we started from the beginning, I went to the end, and then I started a new project from schematic design and took it all the way to the end. And so mm -hmm. that first four years of my career, there was like a lot of learning. And I think that was very, very, uh, very powerful uh, for kind of growing my career. Mm -hmm. And then you, you obviously you, you are no longer at Stantec. So well, there's, there's lots. So I was there for four years and then I moved to Brisbane, Brook Bainan uh, for two years. Mm -hmm. And those were for a couple of reasons. They did different types of work. So I had focused a lot on education and healthcare when I was at Stantec and I was interested in doing residential work and also sports and recreation, which is mm -hmm. something that BBB does a lot of. Oh yeah. And the other thing was that I, I really felt like I was ready to lead a team and it wasn't my turn at Stantec at that time. Mm -hmm. And so that was an opportunity to say, okay, I want to, I, I think I'm ready. So I spent two years at BBB and then I actually went back to Stantec for another four year stint, but this time as an associate. Mm -hmm. And and were you licensed? When did you become licensed then? At the I became, I became licensed in my first stint at Stantec. I, oh, I was good job. Aggressive. I was very aggressive. I was done in three years after I graduated. Oh man, with good behavior. Good job. Not bad, <laughs> not bad Justin. Yeah. So I was back at Stantec for, for, for another four years. And again, I, I kind of went back to my previous focus on education and, and research facilities. That was mm -hmm. something I was really starting to see as kind of being my passion in architecture. I just think it's really interesting work with very cool clients. And I, I think it's important work. So that was another four years. And then uh, about two years ago, um, I left Stantec to join HDR uh, as a principal 
again, continuing to focus on kind of education, science, and technology projects. Now, can you tell us a little bit about HDR? Because we know Stantec and BBB, like, you know, Stantec does a lot of things nationally, like, you know, a lot of scales. BBB, as you said, does a lot of sports facilities. HDR is a little bit different. Can you just go into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, HDR is, it is a a U.S. based company that has a a global presence. So in in some ways it is a little bit similar to Stantec, although it has less of an engineering focus. HDR is primarily an architectural practice. And I would say that um, our strengths are really in that education, science, technology, and healthcare space. Mm -hmm. That's what we're really good at. And the other, the other piece is that it's a very design focused practice which I think is, is really great because you're taking these very highly technical projects, uh, but then you're, you're looking at them with this very keen design eye. Again, so it's, a big, it's a big company, uh, over 10,000 employees, mm-hmm. um, but it's, uh, it, it's definitely a, it's, it's a, a little different experience than Stantec. Wait, Justin, how many, as a principal, you, let's see how good you are as a principal in the office. How many, are in, how many people are in the Toronto office? Quick, quick fire. 55. How many projects do you have going on right now? Oh, I can't even count that high. So many. So oh, many. really? Oh, okay. Nice, yeah. nice, safe answer there. Nice, safe. <laughs> well, no, I mean, in terms of large projects, that number is probably like less than 15, but mm-hmm. we have lots of projects where we're working with an institution and we might have 50 or more ongoing projects simultaneously with a, with a client, like say like Mount Sinai Hospital or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. At HDR, you talked about the nature of the work, but let's just make this a little bit, if you don't mind, I just want to make this a little bit skewed for the audience that we're talking to, uh, potentially like students, right? Mm-hmm. And I've known you since you started uh, architecture education. And, and I'm really pleased to hear, I always, I always makes me feel like a like, I don't want to say proud because pride is a bad thing, but I always feel good when, when I hear that my, my kids uh, have, have really made it. And you're a principal of a really large firm, and, and that, that is great to hear. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of lessons learned as you work your way through school and certainly in the industry. So one of the things that I led off with was the fact that architecture students learn a lot. Right, everything from 3D modeling that you're describing and rendering, all the way through to like how foundations are laid, and you know, God, we we love our sustainable design, and you know, all that accessibility code compliance stuff. But there are things that are beyond the classroom, or maybe they're not necessarily explicit, right? And we talked about this earlier, where you know, a couple of things that we could have, if we had the ability to time travel and just kick ourselves in the butt and say, hey, you know what, you you really focus on this, you know, it would be this particular issue, right? And one thing would be, of course let's say time management, right? Um, or, or at least getting, getting our stuff together. And you know, to be a partner of an architecture firm at a young age, cause you're young and, uh, and, and to really rapid fire and become a licensed architect, that's a really good accomplishment. But I mean, obviously it, it really needed you to have some sort of, I don't know, control, determination, whatever. But let's talk about that ability to manage ourselves, manage our time. What, what, what would you say to a student right now about managing resources, managing time specifically? Yeah. So your, your time travel analogy is, is so, is so great because yeah, if I could, if I could go back in time and meet 20 year old Justin. How about 19 you know, or 18? You're 18 and I got, I got pictures. I got, <laughs> I got, I'm, I'm going to talk about this later, but I, I got pictures, man. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But if I, if I could go back, the, honestly, the, the one piece of advice that I would give to myself is to really work on managing my own time and kind of tracking my own work and, and just being very serious about the things that I'm doing. Um, I think, so everyone I think is, who's in school, who's in architecture school particularly, is kind of 
uh, familiar with that crunch that happens around deadlines, right? Right. Yeah. Architecture schools is very deadline, very deadline driven environment. And honestly, practice can be that way too. Mm -hmm. But what was crazy for me was for the first couple of years, I just sort of went along with that, which was this thing where you get assigned a project and you kind of fool around for a couple of weeks, you dabble with a couple of ideas and then crunch time comes and everybody's in the studio 24 hours a day for like the last three days and you just crank something out Mm -hmm. and you go to your crit, you're exhausted, you're crucified, you're, you're yep. barely coherent, and then you go home and cry. <laughs> you were crying? You well, no, I mean, like, it, it happens. It happens, okay, right? Okay, okay, okay. But, and, and, and you, you start, I started to ask myself, like, is this, is this like how it is? Is this, the, is this how it's always going to be? And I wondered, and, and I wonder for you, Vince, like, thinking about, you know, when a project is designed, like, how many hours do you think an average student spends on a studio project. As a prof, I'm supposed to say the it's three times the amount of hours that are allocated in class. So a studio might be nine to 12 hours, right? A week. Mm -hmm. And we expect the student to spend basically 27 to 36 hours um, in, in, in working on that project. That's, that's the mathematical uh, kind of university level response. I was Fair to say. So, so, so you're saying that per week? That would be the expectation. That is the unfortunate kind of rule of thumb. Yeah. So I don't think that's true. And I okay, think it's tell not me, true in two ways. So I think that maybe it averages out to that. Okay. But I suspect that over a five or six week project, those first two or three weeks, the oh. amount of time spent is much, much lower. Yeah. I mean, and the, then the, later, it's much, much higher. Yeah, the, the, the other way of looking at it, I mean, the reality is that, yes, I, I've, that's, that's kind of amortizing time. But um, I would say that you're right. Like, I, I always have this adage that 90% of the work gets done the last 10% of the time, right? That's right. And, that, and that's, so my, that's insane. And yeah, my question is why, right? Why is that necessary? And, I, and the answer is it isn't. You don't have to do it that way. You, you don't have to spend multiple all-nighters at the end of your project. All you have to do is be disciplined and treat that project, treat your studio like as a job. Go into the studio or wherever you like to work every day, make a list of the things that you need to get done, and then tackle those things in an order of priority. Mm -hmm. It sounds simple when you kind of say it out loud, but that is actually how you become effective at anything, whether it's school or as a professional. Can I, can I put up my hand and act like the sniveling student and just like, because uh, I, I got a couple of like hypotheticals now, okay? So let's, okay, let's, let's do some role play. But, but, but professor, then if that's the case, when you come talk to me and like the day before the, like, you know, two days before the deadline and you say, you know, maybe this isn't right, this isn't right. That's basically a systematic way of keeping me in the studio. You're keeping me down, man. You're chaining <laughs> me in the studio. Come on, tell me, tell me how you respond to that. My response to that would be, if you were organized and you were approaching your work in a disciplined manner, even if there was something that happened that disrupted some of your work, your organizational skills would allow you to adapt to that change. And that is a skill that is absolutely critical once you get into practice. Because if you think that a professor coming and giving you some feedback the day before a deadline is the worst thing that's going to happen to you, I have, you have another thing coming. Okay, so, so tell me, how do we adapt? What, what kind of adaptation tips would you have, Justin, to, to the kids? Right, so again, I think if you're, if you're not familiar with these ideas of, so there's a couple of, there's a couple of, I'm going to recommend a couple of, the first thing is every single student should go out and buy Getting Things Done by David Allen. And <laughs> I know this doesn't sound sexy, but if you learn how to uh, track, organize, and prioritize the tasks that you have to do, and this is not just studio, this is for, this is for all your classes, you will be so much more effective. You will not forget things. You will not leave things to the last moment. 
And you won't, you also won't live with that constant stress of thinking, wait a minute, did I forget something? Is there something that's due tomorrow that I'm not going to be able to get done? Get some organization, create a system, and I promise you, your life will be better. You will be a better student. Your grades will improve. That, that's like a promise. And if that doesn't work for you, you can call me. I, I swear. So, so the thing was, if, if I recall, because I had to read that when I was doing my MBA stuff, right? And, and yes. I remember it was like the 4D method of looking at like, uh, was it do it, defer it, drop it or what? I can't remember what it was, something like that. Oh, I, I don't even remember anymore. Oh, good job. <laughs> I'm plugging this book, but you know what, Vince? I don't remember. Come on, Matt. I, I haven't read that in like decades, man, but I, uh, whatever. I no, my, my point is that reading that book, you'll develop your own system. <laughs> and your own, whether or not it's exactly what David Allen does or not, is not important. What's important is it works for you and everyone's a little bit different, but that gives you an idea of how you would build up a system. And the, the point that David Allen really gets to is that you can look at a task and you decide, is it something I need to do right now? Mm-hmm. Is it fast? Is it a big deal? Is it something that I need to collaborate with somebody else on? You know, and you can start to organize those different tasks and then prioritize them. And again, my experience as a student, and I suspect that for many students, it's extreme, very similar, mm-hmm. is that I just attacked whatever was in front of me, mm-hmm. regardless of whether that was something that was, I needed to do. In lots of cases, I did stuff I didn't have to do, whether it was important. It was just like, whatever was next, I just did that. And mm-hmm. the moment that I was able to start to think about all the things that I had to do, put them all down in one location, I had a little bit of control over my life. And it made a huge difference, huge difference in my life. So, so wait, wait, that didn't happen in school though. That, that pretty much happened after you got it together when you were working, correct? It happened to me in graduate school actually. Oh really? Okay. So, so how, I long, had, how I, wait, how many years did you take you to do masters? Uh, it took me 16 months. Nah, really? Yes. Good job. Yeah. Good and I spent, job. I spent three months in England working. Don't tell Robert Young. That's yeah, okay. Okay. It's fine. Okay. Don't worry. Bobby J will not be listening to this podcast. I can assure <laughs> you of that. Okay. Um, not, not bad, man. That was pretty good. That's pretty good. No, that's, that's good. So, Wait, wait. Now let's just come back to this though. Okay. So again, a student is listening to this and they're understanding how to prioritize, right? Justin? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I, I've given you that hypothetical situation where a kid might just be like, oh man, there's so much thing. But let's talk about waiting. Like there's, how, how do you prioritize? Cause you said you just, you know, devoured the stuff that was right in front of you. But I think that a lot of the reasons why kids get overstressed about things is because they do exactly what you say. They, they just take on the task that's ahead of them. They don't have that forecasting ability to go, you know what? If I got my stuff together, I would be studying for this exam not two days before it happens, but I'd be like mm-hmm. taking bits and pieces. And the crazy thing to me is that, again, maybe I'm really old, okay, Justin, I, I, I don't know, but like, I always thought when you guys were in high school, you guys got into university because you had a good high school grades. I thought you guys got good high school grades because you knew how to pace yourself to do a little bit at a time for an assignment, how to study a little bit at a time before you did a final exam. Why is it that they fall apart in architecture? Well, I, I'm not, I, I, mean, I think maybe you're a little bit optimistic about the behavior patterns of high school students. Oh, um, <laughs> tell, tell me about the good old days, Vince. Yeah, okay, so tell me, what, what's going on here? No, I, I just, I, I think that, again, if, if, if students are anything like the way I was, I was completely disorganized in high school and I was only able to be successful by just working super hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what a lot of students, and again, professionals, see as the solution. It's, I'll just work more. Mm-hmm. I won't. I won't think about what I'm doing. I won't develop any kind of strategy. I won't decide whether one task is more important than another. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to work and work and work and work. Hmm. And that is not sustainable. I'm here to tell you that maybe when you're 18 or 19 or 20, mm-hmm. maybe you can do a couple of all-nighters in a row and you'll survive. I promise you your work is not as good as it would be as if you spread that time out. But by the time you are 30 <laughs> or 40, 
You can't do that anymore. So you're going to need some sort of plan for how you're going to attack that work. Because again, you don't have less work, you have more and it's more complex. Okay. So that's, that's like the lone wolf kind of approach to doing education, right? Where I'm yeah. against all the profs, I'm doing my own projects, I'm doing my own studio. Let's take it to the other extreme because we also know that when assignments are issued or in the industry, when a project is, you know, no individual does an architecture project, like it is a team effort, right? Yeah. So to me, the thing is, let's talk about the other component. If, if it's not only about managing your time, it's also managing your ability to deal with other people, right? Uh, so, you know, often we have assignments or projects that kind of mandate working with others. And you often know, and you often see, whether it's in industry or in school, I see it in school a lot, where there's so much more drama than there should be, right? And it's like, so-and-so didn't do this, or so-and-so didn't show up this meeting, and therefore let's antagonize that person. Or, you know, I'm doing all the work, or so-and-so didn't do the same amount of work, and they shouldn't get the same grades. Help me out here. Give me, give, me, give me some sage advice to the kids here. Well, absolutely. I mean, the first thing is read the Stoics. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right. And again, that's another piece of advice I would give myself if, if I could go on back to uh, give, you know, talk to myself back in school. There was always so much drama that surrounded group projects. And I think part of the reason was ego. Mm -hmm. um, everybody who was involved in the project thought that they were God's gift to the architectural profession just waiting to be discovered and that whatever their idea was, was vastly superior to everyone else. And really everyone else should just sort of be the hands for their brain. Mm -hmm. And again, that is just not how the world works. And if you can find a way to recognize that you have certain strengths and that other people have certain strengths and that other people have different interests that are, they're just as passionate about as you are about your own interests. Mm -hmm. If you can leverage that as a team, again, you'll be so much more effective. Just understand that not everybody wants to do things in the same way and then try to find the ways in which you have overlap. I have found professionally the most effective teams, the, the teams that I've been on that are the best are not made out of people who are like-minded. So when you're picking, you know, pick people that have other interests and other skills. Okay, but, but let's be honest here. We, especially in school, you, know, you, you don't want to concede and say, okay, Justin, you're better at this than I am, so let's follow your lead on this, and for this task, it'll be my lead, right? I, I think that you're, you're often in a situation where I got an idea, you got an idea, and the project requires us to consolidate, right? Um, either we do one of two things. We either go one route or another where it's like, oh, crap, I don't want to work on it if it's Justin's idea, right? Or the issue is it's going to be a compromise, which effectively means it's going to be a Frankenstein of a project where it's got <laughs> eyes and ears of your project, but like feet and toes and nose of mine. And it doesn't make any sense. Right. So uh, help me out here. How, how do you, how would you deal with the interpersonal dynamic then? I think people need to be honest with themselves. Right. So you might think that your idea is as good as the next person. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but you need to be honest about the fact that just because you have, you are the original author of the idea, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything in architectural practice. Ultimately, is the final project going to be any good? That's what you should be focused on. And okay. it will probably be better if you guys work collaboratively. So how do you decide whose idea to use? I can't tell you that. But I can tell you that you should spend a little bit of time hashing that out. That's healthy. Honestly, like you, you shouldn't just roll over just because someone else has a different idea. I don't, I don't advocate that whatsoever. Hash mm -hmm. it out. Be rational about it, but then make a decision and move on. And realize that just because an idea originated with somebody else in the team doesn't make it their project, 
right. it doesn't make it their project. Mm -hmm. It will be all of your project by the end. And even if, even if it's someone else's idea, it's passing through you. Their mm -hmm. idea is being interpreted by you. It, it, anything that you create can't help but be yours. Mm -hmm. So just give up that ego a little bit of where did that original idea come from and focus on getting the right idea. So I think that the reason why I'm bringing up all this uh, is because I want to just get to something that I think is you know near and dear to your heart, right? Which is the whole notion of integrated design process or integrated project delivery, whichever way you want to frame it, right? And in, in I think it'd be worth mentioning for you to define what it is. And then the second thing is just how it relates to the issue of like taking on a leadership role as well as managing you know resources properly and working with others. So please take it away, man. Sure. Okay. So a little bit of background explanation. So when you enter into practice, the probably the traditional way that people are are used to understanding how design and construction happens is that the architect creates a design working collaboratively with some engineers who are sub consultants. Mm -hmm. And then you make a package of drawings for the owner. Then you put those out to tender a bunch of contractors bid on those uh, packages. Mm -hmm. And then they build the, the, the winning contractor builds the project from that package. Now the part that I left out was all the fighting that happens, especially in that. Sense. And addenda and yeah. all and the then there's a, yeah. And there's a lawsuit and, and everybody. Yeah. So that's, that's the traditional way of, of practicing architecture. Yep. And that's how we've done it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But obviously there's some real compromises that come along with that. And I personally had a couple of negative experiences where um, projects that I worked on were ended up being significantly over budget when it came time for construction. Mm -hmm. And that necessitated, you know, really stripping, you know, quality design out of that project, replacing materials, making compromises and making compromises in a really fast way where mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of thought. And that, that really hurts. I can tell you, it really hurts when you invest right. yourself. Yeah. So I was just interested in like, is there, is there a different way? And I started hearing about this, this new thing called integrated project delivery. And how IPD works, it's a little bit different than that initial, that initial uh, piece. So instead of there being kind of these different phases of the project where people kind of hand off the work as it goes along, everyone starts together. So you have an owner, you have an architect, you have engineers, you have a contractor, you have subcontractors, and they are all starting work on that project at the same time mm -hmm. as one entity tied together. And everybody's financial success is tied to the success of the project. So no one person can kind of screw over everybody else. If, if one person drops the ball, we mm -hmm. all suffer. So we're kind of tied together from an incentive perspective. And we all try to help each other in the interest of making sure that the, the, the net loss is not there, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what it leads to, like in a traditional model, if something goes wrong and something will go wrong, is that everyone blame tries game. to like blame. It's like yeah. it's their fault, their fault. And no one wants to help. It's like, you just try to like pass the hot potato and whoever's left with the potato has to solve it. Mm -hmm. With IPD, it's a different approach. And the approach is that we have a problem. Not you have a problem, we have a problem. And whatever needs to happen in order to solve that problem, we'll figure it out. So say for instance, um, you know, a mechanical trade makes a mistake. Well, instead of just saying, hey man, uh, I guess you better figure that out. The whole team gets together. Okay, what, what can we do? Like that's going to cost us a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, whatever. Mm -hmm. What can we do in the project someplace else to maybe save that million dollars? Or what can we do right now? 
can, can we make that work? Can we change something in the design so that that mistake is not a, is not a problem anymore? And it's just a much more open and collaborative process. And as an architect, you know, working in this methodology, it's been really eye-opening because I get to see a lot more of how buildings come together from a construction perspective. And it's far less combative. I actually have a question from a professional standpoint, though. With, with IPD, do you find that you have, um, I guess, in, in, in if I were to look at like a regular, like a retail environment, like do you have repeat customers or do you have, re, like, do you kind of stick with the, like, is there stickiness to your contractors or the owners feel comfortable so they keep on going back? So again, IPD is pretty new, but from a partner's perspective, yeah, yeah. I would say, yes, that we're, we're definitely doing that. So the contractors that I'm currently working with on a nuclear lab in Ottawa, mm -hmm. I'm pursuing another project at McMaster University with the same group because we've worked together. We've kind of been through the wars and mm -hmm. we trust one another. Like trust is like a, a big, a big part of collaboration, right? If mm -hmm. saying like, I'm going to do what's best for us and you're going to back me up. So, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about that in the industry, how does one kind of like outside of just getting the experience working there, right? I mean, and, and you're describing it as rather a rather novel kind of model of operations. Um, like how, how would a student really embark on doing that? Like, it's not like firms necessarily advertise that they follow suit with, you know, an IPD model or um, they, I don't think they exactly say that. They'll say that they do certain types of architecture, they certain, certain type of typologies, certain styles, certain, uh, you know, uh, kind of locales or something. But very rarely do they talk about this is the way we, you know, uh, oversee a project, right? So how, how you're, you're really good at advocating for this, right? And we can see the vestiges of that in their undergrad, right? But how, how would you, you know, recommend a student that's interested in following suit, you know, embark on this? Yeah. So, I mean, they could, they could probably start the same way that I did, which is that I kind of heard about it. And then I started doing kind of research and finding out that there's numerous kind of papers and books that are written about how the process works. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, a, there's a couple, there's one that's called uh, busted budgets or sorry, broken buildings and busted budgets. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a pretty, it's like a pretty technical book but it's good. There's a couple of documents. There's one that was put out by the uh, American Institute of Architects. Yep. I was going to say the AIA. Yep. IPD guide, which is really, really good. That's like, it gives you like a, a very brief overall uh, kind of piece. And then you have different uh, organizations. Like there's the Lean Construction Institute, mm -hmm. which has some really great resources. And there's also the uh, IPDA, the Integrated Project Delivery Association, which is the more Canadian based uh, mm -hmm. kind of version of LCI. And they also have some great publications as well. And you can kind of read up about how they have case studies on projects that have been done um, and they explain how the process works. And like, that's a great way to kind of read up about it and see, is this something that I'm interested in? Is this kind of a way that I'd like to work? Okay. So if, if we got a sense of just the research though, I mean, like, I, I know that if you were to crack open any of these uh, pieces of literature, a lot of them at best would use a notable American firm as a benchmark, right? Yeah. And I, I couldn't off the, off, off the top of my head say, uh, there's a specific series of architecture firms in Canada that really embark on that. A lot of the smaller guys stick with what they know. A lot of the bigger guys also stick with what they know, right? And, and I, you, you were lucky to hook up you know, with HDR, but I mean, how, how, do you, how do you see this kind of saturating into the marketplace? Like, do you see other firms taking it in? Absolutely. And I think, you know, there are, there are firms that you wouldn't necessarily expect 
that have actually really embraced it. So Diamond and Schmidt, I think, is a firm that people are are very very familiar mm-hmm. with. Yep. And they were actually kind of somewhat pioneers uh, because they did that. They did St. Jerome's uh, at the University of Waterloo, which is one of the first mm-hmm. IP projects uh, in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you're seeing a lot of interest now. Like again, we are very much at the beginning of this wave. Like five mm-hmm. years ago doing IPD was extraordinarily rare. It was mostly happening in the United States and in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. And maybe there was like, you know, St. Jerome's was happening. Now there are at least seven IPD projects that I know of mm-hmm. happening simultaneously in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And more and more firms are getting interested because there's some real benefits, I think, for architects and the design community at large. There's, you're, you're taking a lot of risk out of the design process. And in some ways you're getting a lot more control. Okay. But let me, let me take it one step further though, because I, I know that if I were a student and I'm in architecture right now, right? I, I, I think I, you, you sold me on the Kool-Aid. I got to <laughs> do my homework on, on the literature, but then I also got to look at the prospects of finding firms and, and you sure. started outlining a few, but I know that a student in, in school right now has the option to like start taking on things like, um, PMP certification, um, say, you know, uh, smart building or, or like, you know, um, well standards or lead certification. Um, are, are there any kind of credentials or, and I know, I know it sounds terrible to say, like, can you get a meritocracy going on, but like, is there any kind of, you know, IPD designations or, or like sort of certification curricula, right? Like other than just hard knocks learning it on, in, the, in the firms? Sure. So th- there's not any that I am aware of. The only thing that would be close would be something like a lean black belt mm. <laughs> um, because I- yep. IPD uses a lot of the, the, the kind of concepts of lean uh, mm-hmm. and lean construction. And again, if, if any of the things that I've just said are of any interest to anyone who's listening to this podcast, that's another uh, location for research as well, particularly if you like learning about Japanese car companies. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh so that, that I would say is probably the closest thing. Like that's, that's something that you come across quite a bit in the industry, but there isn't any sort of like, there's no lead uh, accredited professional mm-hmm. equivalent that I'm aware of for integrated project delivery at this well, time. Yeah, well, I, I just to paint the picture properly, um, Ryerson's program is a threefold program. So everything that other programs do in four years for the undergrad, we, we do in three years so that the fourth year, it's a specialization year where other you know, universities would have like option studios in the middle of their curriculum. We put them all at the end so that we, we take all the accredited undergrad um, you know, the pre-professional stuff, we put it in three years, such that the fourth year, they can specialize in project management, building science or architecture, right? Because, you know, you, you hit, in, in a lot of architecture programs, we see the kids hit the third year or the second year hump where they're like, you know what, I'm just going to finish the program, even though I really want to go into real property development, or I want to go into like, you know, uh, set design, I just got to finish my architecture degree. Well, in our program, we kind of let the students get uh, a point in third year where they say, look, I'm going to go into this kind of field and therefore we give them options right so what you're describing right now is all very much catered to our students that are interested in pursuing project management so i I really want to say thank you Hmm. for that because that's actually really invaluable Um, but i want to come back to school again okay so we've got we've been school work school work but now let me get back to school for you man so i know i know (laughs) so I, i like the fact that you were talking about when i was a kid i did this so um, as many of you guys know, I'm, I'm essentially immortal. And uh, <laughs> I, I have, the thing is, wh- you're so old, Justin, that the photos I got of you are actually real legit photos. 
That's I right. It's before digital, man. <laughs> I know. I know. Which is, which is hilarious because uh, so, so believe it or not, and it sounds kind of stalkery, but I do have like a Vince book where I keep all of my kids that I've taught and especially kids that have obviously that I've hired that I think very highly of. Um, I, I think I, I keep them around. So I, I just wanted to, you guys don't have photos on this podcast, but hey, I'll tell you right now, Justin is, was not lying when he said, you know, he, he goes and just when he sees something and he goes for it and he goes a hundred percent, a million percent for it. So I have one picture in front of me and it is of Justin. And let me set this up because I'll, pro and you're going to say it's absolutely true. Okay. So I have a picture of Justin and a friend of his, uh, Taylor. Nils, of course, right? who else yep. would it be? Yep. And, and I, I, I remember, I remember in first year we had this discussion and I was like, you guys are really tight. You guys are buddies. And, he's, and then you said, yes, he's my hetero life mate. And I was like, what? Uh, do you remember that? I'll, absolutely. That's so, 100%. So, so this is this fun stuff. So uh, I have pictures of you guys. So in architecture schools, obviously there's like stuff like the Beaux-Arts ball where, you know, it's a kind of custom where people dress up as buildings. Nope, nope. Justin and Taylor, when they were in first year, they, they had a chance to make their costumes for Halloween. And no word of a lie, don't say anything yet. I have a really good photo of Justin and Taylor dressed up as Optimus Prime and Megatron. Absolutely. And they actually cut the cost is not like a face mask of Optimus Prime or thing. They legit went and took the time to cut cardboard to make a real, like this is before Michael Bay, okay? They <laughs> made legit like cardboard, like full on chest and like, you know, helmets and stuff of the Transformers. So that is some really bad management of time, man. You could have, you had a studio deadline, you know. I was, that. I was, I know it's funny. I was thinking that because yeah, not only that, but we did all the cuts manually. We didn't even use a laser cutter. Laser what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It barely existed at that time. And I was, I know for a fact that we had a studio deadline. And where, where else did you get the cardboard from? Studio deadline, we spent like three days <laughs> building those costumes. Now, the good news is, those costumes were dope. Those were, uh, I, those were damn good, man. Like <laughs> cosplayers back in the day had nothing on you guys. Cause now my was, project, I don't remember at all. I have no idea, but I do remember the, I do remember Megatron. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was some good stuff. <laughs> and and I, I just thought that that was a funny story because I was like, yeah, like this, like you remember this. And, and I remember this cause I was like looking at the photos going, damn, man, that that's like, uh, I think that's like almost 20 years ago. So man, that, that, that's, that's old. And then the second thing is I remember doing like, even though I'd hired you and, and, and again, you're, you're a great kid, you're good helping. But I remember I had to sit in on a couple of your reviews for studio projects and I'm not sure if, you, and this is, again, we don't have photo evidence of this one, but I remember when you were a kid and you were presenting, I can't remember what the project itself was, but um, the proposal that you had were these uh, rectangular, like it looked like almost trains, but they were in the river, right? Okay. And I'm not sure if you remember, but it was like you had these buildings that were in the river and they, and in water at least. And it was, a, it looked like it was a river, right? And we were looking at these, like, it looked like a little train, like, you know, like took subway train cars or buildings or something. And they look like basically rectangular things in plan, right? And we're looking at the plan and you were explaining this project and all through the description, you had projects and you're like, uh, the thing was like, some of these things move and some of these stationary and some of them were kind of partially submerged. So you kept on referring to some of your building as like, these are the floaters. Do you remember this one? Oh no, I don't remember that. Yeah, oh my so, goodness. So it was a project where you had like, it was like a conceptual project or something. And like yeah. some of your buildings were floating in the water and it looked like you had, and then we kept on referring and we, like, you know, all of us were like sneaking little smiles oh, to each other. No, bleep, bleep, I, wait a nudge, minute. Nudge. I know what project, I know what project this is now. Yeah. I remember. Ah, okay. And so I'm not worried. I'm not even making this <laughs> oh, up. No. See, see, see crazy old uncle vince he remembers everything 
And it, and then the profs, we were just looking at each other going, it's like nudge, wink, wink, nudge. It's like, yeah, you're floaters, man. This, this, this is like, I don't know, like how about number one? Oh, no, no, number two looks way better. And then not, like that was all the discussion. We kept oh, on, like no. throwing all the stuff. And it's like, oh, that one looks kind of like, is that, is that lumpy? Like, I don't know. Like, See, so, kids, this is why uh-oh. you want to manage your time so that you don't work all night before your, your big crit so that you're not delirious and that you have actually planned out what you want to say so that you don't say something really stupid that then gets all the reviewers only thinking about that. Okay, that, but dude, there can, you go. can you describe that, Brian? Because that could not have been designed like overnight. That was like, that was pre-planned. Like you, am I right? Like you had like, if I recall probably, you had like project parts that were floating and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, there, it was, I was big into modular for a while. Uh, uh, I think everyone kind of has that. And that, that particular project involved like a, I, I basically was, it was like, I think it was like a, a summer camp. And uh-huh. uh, I think I had the students like living on houseboats uh-huh. on, on the water. I think that if I remember correctly, I think that's what it is. I think that one can, thank you for bringing that up. Cause that was oh. a project that had been completely erased uh, from my memory. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Uh, sorry, man. Uh, t- so, it's okay. Vince has issues with forgetting. I, 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 I can't remember what I ate for breakfast, but I'll remember like <laughs> stories like that. But come on, give some inspirational stories. Cause like, again, you are a, pretty much a principal and you're still young. And, and, and I think you, people can hear in your voice that, you know, you, you know, you're, you're energetic, you're enthusiastic. So let's, let's give some people some uh, sense of personality. Cause I've just told them stories about you when you were a kid and like, uh, obviously you got better. Right. And, 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 <laughs> Yeah, but, but, it, no matter who you are today, kids, you can get better. You can yeah, improve. Yeah, well, that's the thing. But do you have any like stories from when you were a kid? Because I think a lot of people just like to listen to podcasts, not just because of the informative stuff, but also because like uh, the suffering is 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 real. And <laughs> basically, they know from past. so I have a story that actually, again, I think ties into our general theme as well, which is I want to say this must have been in second year because I was still hand drafting again, dating myself uh, a little bit there, mm-hmm. and uh, I was doing. So I was I was up late because it was coming up on a coming up on a deadline and I wasn't ready and so I was doing I was doing I had to do two sections I remember this very clearly I had to do two sections and so one was looking one way through a building and one was looking the other way and and back when we were doing hand drafting a trick that you could use was if you had sections looking in opposite directions you would finish one section you would flip it over you mm-hmm. would put another piece of trace on top of it and you could actually kind of copy portions of that section that were the same so it was a, yeah. it was a great way of like speeding things up so you didn't mm-hmm. have to measure anything mm-hmm. so this is very late at night i may or may not have been drinking i will not i will neither confirm Good drinking in studio oh my good who? lord i'm clutching who? my pearls again it was the, it was the old days and i'm I, and, I, and again I'm, it's very late i'm getting very tired it's three or four o'clock in the morning and i'm, I'm drawing away and i finally i finished the second section i'm very excited it's like oh finally i can go home and go to sleep i'll sleep for a couple hours and i'll get up and i'll start working on some like perspectives so I, I pull the drawing off of my uh, drafting board mm-hmm. and I'm like, kind of, it's kind of weird because I can still see like the, the, the underlay of like the drawing that I was tracing over. I'm like, well, that's, what's going on? Like, why, mm-hmm. why am I still seeing these lines? And so I kind of, I look, I pull up the sheet and I flip it over and I realize that I was so tired that I didn't put down another piece of paper. <laughs> on the back of the same piece of paper a different drawing oh man so i had destroyed two drawings yes so wow. again plan out your work so that you don't have to work when you're tired 
and, and you don't won't. drink. Well, how about, how about stay off the drugs while you're stay working? Off, stay <laughs> off the booze and keep a clear mind and you will not do make devastating mistakes. See, that was like the beginning of me changing how I worked in the studio. Let's put it that way. So just to put things in perspective, um, if you guys, I, I know some of the kids are going to like cyber stalk you and look you up and they're going to be like, oh, he looks so young. But that's that like kids, you guys don't understand that within the span of like 20 years, we went from manual drafting, right? Yeah. To, you know, we adopt full on scale adoption of CAD to, you know, Revit and BIM stuff and parametric modeling. That's really fast. And, and yes. like, you know, you look at Justin, you're like, oh, that guy's, you know, all of like 30, I don't want to date you, but 30-ish years old, okay? And uh, yeah, that's, that, that's what we did back in the day. It was one step above uh, when crazy old Grandpa Vince was doing uh, cuneiform clay tablets uh, <laughs> and drafting with papyrus and stuff, man. No, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy because it, it isn't that long ago. It really, it really isn't, kids. It seems like it is, but it's not. And I remember very distinctly getting a lot of pushback for trying to do digital uh, submissions. Oh, dude, try being the guy, the prof that had to teach it. No, absolutely, right? But, and, but that's crazy because now I'm sure it's like, well, that's insane. Of course, of course we use programs. Of course we use computers in order to make our drawings and our, our images. But at that time, there was still, there was still uh, a hesitance to accept that. It wasn't seen as real architecture. And I honestly, I was told on numerous occasions that if you, if you continue to like work in this way, you're, you're just going to be a, first of all, there's absolutely nothing with being a renderer. <laughs> it's yeah. actually like, it's actually a pretty cool job. Uh, and also it's just not true, right? Yeah. Like it's just architect design is design. How, whatever tools you use, if you're a great designer, you'll, you'll succeed. Well, see, the thing is, um, I'm not sure if you knew the back of how the back behind the scenes kind of thing where, you know, I had to teach that, that stuff. And, you know, I got a lot of pushback from, uh, and I use the term loosely colleagues who said, basically, you can't teach them this stuff um, because it's, A, it's, it's poisoning their minds. They're not understanding how drafting and line weights work, right? Um, and at the same time, it's like, you know what? It's just a flash in the pan. You know, there's going to be something else. And I was like, uh, I don't do, why am I taking advice from people who've never worked on a building in the last 20 years, right? That's a, that's a great, that's a great question. Yeah, no, it's. Right. Anyway, I mean, we, I mean, we all thank you because first of all, learning those skills made me a lot of money when I was in my twenties. So thank you very much for that. Uh, and then also, you know, and this is maybe a little bit of a, this is a little bit of a tip potentially for students as well. Mm -hmm. Like when I was early in my career, I, I had a couple of skills. So I had the, the rendering skills were very strong. My, my kind of graphical skills were pretty strong and, and most students are these days. Mm -hmm. And I was a pretty good writer. And what that allowed me to do was to get involved with business development. So helping just sit like, you know, not, not going out and glad handing and kissing babies, but mm -hmm. like helping people put together proposals, putting together presentations. And that got me like a ton of FaceTime with partners and principals, mm -hmm. right? People who took an interest in my career and said, oh, here, this young guy, he's, he's not bad. And honestly, those people, those mentors had like an enormous influence on my career and continue to until this day. And it's because I had something even straight out of school that I could offer them that was valuable. That was a little bit different than what other people had to offer. So, well, well actually, Justin, I want, I'm going to build up on that one before I let you go on this one. I want to, I want to ask about this because I find that a lot of students downplay or underplay something that I think I would say that on some level you've got a natural ability for, but I'd say it's verbal communication. 
I think, and I'm not talking about the writing, I'm talking about verbal, right? Like, so yes. the fact that you have confidence in what you say, um, the fact that, you know, you, you aren't humming and hawing at every single word. Now, now that I made you self-conscious, I must kind of make you second guess um, things. Um, um, yeah, right? <laughs> but, but the fact is that a lot of people really don't have that ability. And quite frankly, even if you practice it, it still is very challenging. So what kind of advice would you have to offer a student besides just practice makes perfect? Because clearly all the stuff that you're just talking about, getting in front of people, you know, at, at, you know working with the, uh, the you know, outwardly facing ends of firms, uh, you obviously have to build up some acumen, right? So how, how would you say that you could build that up? So a couple of ways. So things that I've done with various people that have worked for me who have expressed an interest. So I had one, I had one person that was working for me who I thought was just extremely talented, but uh, this person really struggled uh, to communicate. And again, mm -hmm. for everyone out there, like what we do as architects is communication. Mm -hmm. We, what we do in our head is like, that's kind of the easy part, right? Like you'll get good at that, but being able to like communicate what you're trying to do and why it's important, that part's critical. Right. So this person was really struggling with that. And that was the only thing holding them back. Mm -hmm. So that person, we started having them do little presentations to peers. Just little ones. And that's something about, that about what? Like just about any, like what's going literally on? Literally anything. So it could be what they were working on that week. It could be what they did. Just, just start getting comfortable talking in front of other people. Mm -hmm. And if that's not enough, then I've had other people who have actually done programs like Toastmasters. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, some people think, oh, okay, that's kind of hokey. It is extremely effective. I have seen people who could barely stand at the front of a room without shaking become like... TED quality talkers in the span of a year. It is shocking. And again, it makes an enormous difference. Like some of those people were kind of overlooked in their positions in the office, had been let go a couple of times from mm -hmm. firms in Toronto. And it made no sense to me because they were ultra talented. And but what they were lacking was that ability to communicate what they were, what they what they really were trying to do with their designs. And once they got that skill set, the the sky was the limit. Yeah. So that, that's something that I really want to make clear because uh, it, in this whole entire conversation, what, re, what really reminded me about one of the things that I really appreciated hiring you was because you are able to comfortably speak to, I think you were in third year at the point in time. Did I hire I was, you? Yeah. yeah. So uh, to me, it was really important that I had students that weren't just simply skilled, right? Because I can get anybody that knows how to use the software, right? But to have some ability to speak to students and communicate properly. And, and just hearing you speak again, it, it really has only gotten better. And I think that, you know, it would be a really good opportunity for you to tell the kids how to do this. Because I think that a lot of students, even in grad thesis defenses, still really grind when it comes to presenting their ideas. And spend time on that, right? Like it's, you can grind and grind and grind on your drawings. And that's absolutely important. You, you have to have the content on the wall. Mm -hmm. But think about your argument. What are you trying to say? Every time you stand in front of a committee, you are essentially making an argument. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're making an essay. I did, you gave me this problem. I believed this is a way to solve it. And this is how I approached it. That's mm -hmm. what you're doing every single time. And if, if you're not approaching, uh, if you're not approaching your crits like that, that might be why they're not going well. And they yeah. will go a lot better if you spend time thinking about what it is you want to say and how you want to say it. I promise mm -hmm. you. Yep. That said, wise words from Justin Purdue, principal at HDR. But Justin, man, what are the chances I can get, I'm gonna put you on the spot right now. What are the chances I can get your butt down to do reviews at some point for my kids moving into the future, once we get out of the pandemic and stuff, man? 
I oh, I'd love to. I I, I oh, you say that students. now. You say no, I, no, no. Seriously, seriously. Like I'm, I really do. I enjoy working with students. I enjoy working with co-ops. There's so much energy, so much passion. It's awesome. Like the ideas are phenomenal. So I, I'd be, I'd be so happy to do that. Okay. And just because you dropped it, that brings me to my second question. So a, I'm gonna get your butt down to do reviews at some point. Second thing, you said you enjoy co-ops. Hey, man, your godfather's asking you. I got you recorded right now. Your godfather's asking you. One day, and that day may never come, I may call upon <laughs> you for a favor. So I hired a little punk-ass kid named Justin Purdue a long time ago to work for me. What are the chances my kid will return that favor and hire some of my kids? Hey, if you, if you, send, me, you send me all the good ones, and uh, we'll, we'll make it happen. Hey, we're, we're not, we are not biased. We like, we like talented people. Don't make promises you can't keep there, Justin. Okay. Well, let's let for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, but like what? You, you got to solve it, man. We got to, we got to, we got to get, the industry is not in a great place right now, but I, I think that we will be, we will recover pretty quickly. Okay. Okay. So all I have to do is wait for the pandemic and the apocalypse to uh, sail clear <laughs> and I will have some of my kids in your fold and I will I rest assured. I can't see why not. Oh, good. That's all I want to hear, man. That's all I want to hear. Like your godfather's just asking for a favor. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Okay. All right. So with that, Justin, thank you very much. And I think the kids will look forward to hearing this, but also looking forward to seeing you uh, at upcoming reviews because man, oh man, I, I just, I long for the days when I can have some of my old kids come back and do reviews and just chilling like the old days, man. Well, hey, you know what? I love nostalgia too. So we'll, we'll hop in the DeLorean and we'll travel back in time and uh, it'll be great. Doc, you mean this is a time machine? Uh, okay. Uh, okay. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thank you so much, Vince.